You are now listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, where the worlds of sports medicine and performance collide. My name is Mike Quintins. I'm a physical therapist with an entrepreneurial mindset that specializes in treating orthopedic and sports injuries. I'm bringing on the brightest and sharpest in the field of sports medicine to share their best practices and explore the gap where medicine meets performance. What's happening, Performance Therapy Nation? This is Mike Quintins, your host of the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Scott Davidoff. Uh, today, we're going to dive into a little bit of everything. Dr. Davidoff is a physiatrist uh, with Mainline Spine uh, in, uh, in King of Prussia. They have facilities elsewhere in the area, and that's about 20 to 30 minutes outside Philadelphia. And uh, we, we haven't had a physiatrist on yet. Uh, we haven't had a spine specialist on yet. So this is, this is golden. You have a background in sports medicine, so I'm really stoked to, to, to get into this with you today. Uh, before we get into the in, into uh, the podcast, I'd like to thank the listeners for for staying loyal and, and and listening to the podcast. It means the world to me. We depend on what you guys tell us uh, for feedback to to get up to get you guys the guests that you want. And, and this is perfect. We've been getting some requests to to get a, a spine doc on board. And um, and this I would say Dr. Davidoff is different different than most. So uh, you know, instead of me talking him up, I'm gonna let Dr. Davidoff. Uh, you know, you know, flex a little bit himself. So I'll get into your, to your bio here, Doc. So uh, Dr. Scott Davidoff is a physiatrist at Mainline Spine and King of Prussia, PA, located about 20 minutes outside of Philly. Dr. Davidoff earned his undergraduate degree from Emory University in Atlanta and his medical school degree from Temple University uh, School of Medicine. He then completed an internal medicine internship at Hahnemann University Hospital and subsequently returned to Temple University for his residency training in physical medicine and rehabilitation. After his residency, Dr. Davidoff completed a fellowship in interventional pain management, sports medicine at orthopedic and spine specialists in York, PA. Dr. Davidoff is, a board, certifi- is board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, pain medicine, and sport in sports medicine. Uh, he is currently serving as president of the American Board of Pain Medicine. It's awesome. Dr. Davidoff has undergone extensive training in various fluoroscopy uh, guided x-ray, which is also x-ray guided procedures used to treat the neck and back. Uh, he additionally specializes in regen orthobiologic medicine, including PRP therapies, which is cutting edge medicine uh, to help treat an array of painful conditions. Uh, this is uh, this, uh, this bio doesn't even touch it uh, to, to what, you know, to everything that you do. So this is, really cool uh knowing your background and everything and you as a person so um welcome to the podcast dr davidoff mike thanks for having me man i appreciate it um one of the better introductions i've had before so uh, <laughs> I'll, much, I'll... much appreciate it and i've listened to a few of your other podcasts before so i just uh hope a little to uh the the quality of the other guests you've had i will so thank you that, me. that means a lot thank you very much uh now we're, we're, we're fortunate to have you on and you know i want to dive into it uh time time is valuable so um yeah, and if there's any direction you want to go, you let me know. But I, I say I would love to start off with, um, you know, can you share with our listeners what a, a physiatrist is? What what is that? Or what is sure. that p- position? And, and it's, it's a good question because most people don't know what a physiatrist is, right? Um, it's not a psychiatrist. Um, it, so so a physiatrist is a doctor in the field of physical medicine rehabilitation, um, and what that is, that's a specialty of medicine uh, that focuses on a patient's function. Yeah. So. Um, you know, not just improving someone's pain, um, but improving their quality of life. And so during our training, 
uh, we see a variety of conditions, right? So that could be someone um, that had a stroke that needs to learn how to walk again or how to eat again. Um, someone with a spinal cord injury, someone that's an elderly patient that breaks their hip that needs to walk again. So we treat a variety of conditions as a field, as a physiatrist, as a field specific to our practice. Uh, we have a focus on sports medicine and pain management, right? So we have a focus on, on improving someone's pain, but not only just their pain, but improving their function, right? And it could be specific to a patient. So maybe someone comes in and has a hard time playing catch with their son because of the back pain, right? So that's a goal of treatment is to get them back doing that. Maybe it's someone that needs to pick up their grandkids and the, an elderly patient that had, that has back pain or neck pain. So that's the field in general is, is, is really, and I think is what separates it from other specialties is that it really focuses on a patient's function and improving their quality of life. Yeah, and that's cool. I, I love how you explain that and how you related it to pain and function and quality of life. And that's, listen, you're speaking my language there. And we're speaking yep. the same language. I, I love every bit of that. Um, what kind of training is unique to a physiatrist versus uh, an MD or DO? Sure. We, I, myself, uh, I'm an MD. I went to um, medical school at Temple, uh, but okay. some doctors in our field are, are doctors of osteopathic medicine, right? DOs. Mm -hmm. So essentially, whether you go through medical school or DO school, um, you end up in a, a residency, right? And so the residency, um, generally speaking in medicine, is, is, is a focus on a specific field. So as I mentioned before, um, the residency that, that I went through and my colleagues went through is, is in physical medicine rehabilitation. So we did different rotations. Again, as I mentioned, uh, we did a rotation in, in, in stroke rehab and spinal cord rehab and traumatic brain injury. So you go through these fields and, and, you, and you learn uh, the, the, the medicine behind the injuries and, and the physical therapy behind the injuries and the treatments for that, uh, again, with a focus on rehabilitation. Uh, and then specific to, to what I do is that I then did a fellowship in sports medicine and pain management. And that's where we kind of learn the specifics of that field above the basics of the physical medicine rehabilitation residency. So is that it's, common? A long road. it's a long road, but uh, glad to do it. And we love what we do. Is that common to go through to go that route in terms of your residency and, and, and fellowship? Is it like how you did it, how your route was? Uh, is that is that like the only way to do it? Is there other ways to do it? And yeah, there, there's other ways to do it. The, the field of pain management, there's a variety of ways to get into that, right? So for the most part, and this is a good question because a lot of people, a lot of a lot of patients have a question. You know, what's your training and, and how did you become a pain management physician or a sports medicine physician? So in the field of let's lump together sports medicine and pain management because they go hand in hand, right? Someone injures themselves um, on the playing field and they want to get back to to playing their sports or playing their activity. Uh, but they need to heal from the injury and reduce their pain, right? So from a pain medicine aspect, you can go the route of physical medicine and rehabilitation that I just described. There are some anesthesiologists that go through an anesthesia residency and then do a fellowship in pain medicine as well, learning different interventional procedures. Um, on the other side of that, there's, there's orthopedics, right? There's orthopedic surgery that goes through surgical training, but then ends up treating these similar conditions. Um, and then there's some family medicine doctors that do a fellowship training in sports medicine as well. So there's a variety of different residencies, but typically if you're going to specialize in a field, especially these days, um, everything's subspecialized, like everything in the world. Um, yeah. And so a fellowship is, is a subspecialization um, after your basic training. Yep. Um, and so th that is a common path. It just depends on which path you, you choose to go to. Heck yeah. Cool. I, and I feel like your ability to um, see the whole person is what separates what your experiences are compared to, uh, you know, some other physicians and, and, and their process. Right. I mean, that's just the nature of, of residencies and fellowships and the education. Uh, but you, you're trained to my understanding, you're trained to, 
to look at the holistic approach to treatment. Uh, would you say that? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would 100% agree with it. You know, I think that's unique to, again, if we're, we're just talking about physical medicine, rehabilitation, yeah. or, or a physiatrist, we really get extensive training on, on physical examination, right? Musculoskeletal medicine. So it's not just looking at an x-ray or looking at an MRI scan and treating that, right? But it's examining the patient, as we talked before, seeing what their goals are, right? So someone that's 20 years old, and has back pain is going to have a different set of goals than someone that's seven-year-olds and have a back pain. So it's, it's, it's putting the whole picture together. And I know you guys do the same thing, right? And that's what I think yeah. makes our two fields uh, work together so well, is that we have common goals and we can work together to get the patients to their specific goal and their specific function. So yeah, physical exam and and, and hearing a patient's specific lifestyle and goals um, is a big part of um, properly treating the patient in my eyes. Oh, amen. I, that, to me, that carries it, especially today, that carries a lot of weight because patients, they, they want attention. I mean, let's be honest. They, they yep. want, and, and rightfully so, they deserve the attention, right? So they've been in the waiting room, they did the images, you know, that they've been in pain, they waited for the appointment for, you know, weeks or what have you. Absolutely. And, and they want attention. So if physician is in the office with a patient and they're looking at, you know, the computer screen the whole time, looking at an image and not doing a physical exam, I would say there's a, a good percentage of patients that wouldn't, uh, they just, that, that turns them off a little bit. So I, the fact that you're doing physical exams and I wouldn't expect any less, uh, I know you well enough by now. And I've heard so much about you from some of the other PTs in our company that you, you uh, the attention that you provide is is different. And it's all based on like options that, that you provide to the patient. And, and you guys make a decision together on it, to my understanding. Does that seem? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate that. Listen, no one wants to sit in the waiting room for 20 minutes, wait, right, as you said, three, four weeks for an appointment, and then spend yeah. 30 seconds with the doctor. Same with you guys, right? You, you, yeah. No one wants to come in and say, oh, do this stretch for five minutes, so I'll come back. And, and right, so you guys are giving personal attention. So it's the yeah. same mindset. And um, look, it's, 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 it's the field of medicine has, has become more difficult, but I think it is important to kind of keep that, that patient focus in mind. One thing I will say while we're talking about that, especially in terms of waiting times, I think one thing that has come out of this pandemic um, is the option of telemedicine. Right. Listen, nothing replaces an in-person meeting and a physical examination. And I think, especially with what we do, we need to see the patient and examine them in person. However, there are times where if I'm if I'm seeing a patient and I order an MRI scan or an X-ray, right? And the next follow-up visit is to review those results. That could be done over telemedicine, right? That could be done over telemedicine. Yeah. So someone's not driving 15, 20 minutes, right, and waiting in a waiting room. Obviously, we try to keep our weights down. Right, but yeah. is, you know, everybody runs behind sometimes and, and, and no, no one wants to wait. And so if a patient can, can be at work, being productive at work or, or has to be at home with their kids or be in school and just take a break from that, um, I think there's a huge patient convenience to having that option. And I think that's something that, that's here to stay. And again, it can't all be telemedicine, um, but I think keeping that option is something that, that at least one thing that's come out of this pandemic um, that I think, I think will stay in medicine for a while. Well said. Uh, I went to our national conference called the Combined Seconds Meeting for Physical Therapy. This happened probably two months before the pandemic hit. And I, I went to a lecture. Um, and so it's all of PT, like academia to ortho, to private practice, to geriatrics, right. all of it. And so there was a, a lecture on telemedicine, the future of physical therapy. And it was like the it was like the 5 p.m. one. A lot of people don't go to that <laughs> session. You know? So, right. so right. I was like, I, I got to check. So I get there probably five minutes before it starts, and the room is packed. Uh, like it is packed. And so I, you know, find a you know seat in the front edge, front corner, and 
the gentleman up there, I know him from my uh, residency, I did in uh, orthopedics. And so he says that uh, telemedicine, as there's not many laws, at least for PT, uh, across most states, it is right now, he said, I think about like a $5 million industry. And that was, again, like months before the pandemic. He goes, yeah. in five years, I pre he predicted that it would be a $5 billion industry. I'm not sure what the number is now, but it's a heck of a lot more than $5 billion. And, and it's opportunities like, like that for you to provide value to your patient, to educate them on what your fi the findings were on an image, and, and to have a conversation with them over any questions that they have. And so they don't have to travel in and then, you know, that's less exposure and everything else. And it's just convenience instead of that of getting, you know, a report we would get the reports from patients and say, Hey, I got to wait two weeks to see the doc. Can you help me interpret this? Right. It's not our place to do that. You know, that's, so it's, um, this is so much more convenient and appropriate. Uh, and let's be honest, uh, your time is valuable. You can bill for that time. Now a phone call before you may not be able to bill for it. So, so to me, the fact that you guys can do that through telemedicine is amazing. And, and we get that you can, nothing replaces an in-person appointment to educate and offer an opportunity to analyze movements and, and activity and exercise. You know, you know, there's nothing wrong with that either on our end. Obviously, you know, what we can do with our hands and what we can feel, and you know, what we can see in person is much different, but nonetheless, still value. Yeah, no, I, well said, well said. I know, I'm sure during the pandemic, listen, I know different therapy places had to, had to you know, some patients were hesitant to come in to therapy, right? I'm sure that's still the case with some people, you know, yep. now we're seeing another spike here. So I think in general, in the field of medicine, whether it be in any field, you know, that's part of um, adapting to the times, right? And, and that's what we have to do. And that's what we've done. So uh, what, yeah, what, well said. How would you describe the average patient that you see in your clinic? What types of injuries uh, are, are you treating? Sure. So we, we see a, a wide variety of patients, right? Ages 16 to 100. Um, I think I've actually 104, I think is my oldest patient and uh, in great shape, by the way. So yeah, right. right of great, course. Yeah, great shape. Just, just. <laughs> But but so the, so we do have a concentration um, just with musculoskeletal medicine, right? So we see a lot of spine pain, right? A lot of neck pain, a lot of back pain. We'll see other joints, extremities, right? Shoulders, knees, elbows. Um, but in terms of the spine, you know, it's really uh, you could break it down between acute injuries and chronic injuries, right? And so and two wildly different ways of treating the patient. Let's call it 50-50, right? So 50% of our patients present with what we call acute pain, uh, which is defined as pain less than six weeks to three months, depending on how, yep. how you define that. And that's someone where you're working up the injury first, right? You're ordering scans, you know, you're getting, you're make sure they're getting into therapy if they haven't been in there before, you're putting them on some pain medications um, and doing some interventions. And that's, that's, there's a specific goal, right? You were, you had a baseline of being relatively pain-free before this, whatever the event happens, now you have pain that's affecting your life. How do we get you back there? Um, and, that, and that's a big part of our, our, our patient population. The other part is is chronic pain, um, which is which is more challenging, right? So if someone comes in with 15 years of back pain and they've done five different sessions of therapy and they've seen four yeah. chiropractors and they've done acupuncture and they've had injections, right? Well, the realistic goal is is not to have them pain free in two weeks. Well, that would be great, but but it's then baby steps, right? It's 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 figuring out what they haven't tried before, right? And maybe there's a different type of medication or a different type of intervention, um, and just trying to chip away at that pain, right? And and that's where restoring function comes into play too. Maybe they're not going to run a marathon next year, um, a patient like that, but realistically, yeah. you know, maybe they could walk, walk a block or go see their their grandson play baseball. So. 
those are the two basic subsets of patients, acute pain, chronic pain. And again, I know you guys see the same thing and it's different goals and different treatment options with them. Well said, because it's a lot of it's education too. And they have a lot of questions and they've gotten multiple opinions already. And they've seen, like you said, multiple uh, healthcare professionals. How do you, how do you juggle that? Like, is there anything, you know, what's a common question you'll get in the clinic that you're like, oh man, like, all right, I, all right, I, I, I got to make sure I address this. You know, yeah, like, sure. where, 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 where do you go with that one? So, 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 Doctor Google has taken over right the last uh, five to ten years here, right? And, and so, which is which is good and bad, right? The patients sure. should educate themselves. Uh, the danger of the internet, uh, as you know, is that uh, there's there's a lot of misinformation out there. So, yes, part of that is is kind of dispelling myths, right, and saying no, that's actually not true, or or this cream you saw on, on an ad, uh, you know, at 2 a.m. On, on, on television is, is not going to help you. But, but I think patient education is the key to that. And, and the question I get asked the most often in terms of that is, how do I prevent this from happening again, right? Or how do I minimize my flare-ups? And, and so teaching someone, and that typically comes towards the end of treatment, right? In order to gain strength and, and, and modify your activity and prevent it, we got to first calm the pain down, right, and 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 also figure out what caused it in the first place. And I think that's where, in our field, that's where our relationships with yourself, right, and and the and the physical therapist come into play, um, because let's work as a team and, and teach the patient proper body mechanics, right, proper ways of strengthening up the core if they have back pain. Um, and the reality is, and this is tricky, is that sometimes, and I see this a lot in 30, 40, 50 year olds, right, where and I'm myself included in that age range, yep. is that we're just not, we just may not be able to do everything we used to do. And that, that's tough to come into grip sometimes. But the answer is not lie on the couch the rest of your life, right? It's, it's okay, let's keep you active, but given your condition, this is safe, right? Maybe lower impact exercise is better than higher impact exercise or lower weight, higher rep weightlifting is better than, you know, high impact. And so again, it, it depends on the patient, but but that's that, that to answer that question, kind of long-winded answer, Patients ask, you know, what can I do to to improve on this in the future or prevent this in the future? And, and I think it's a, you know, it's a, what you call like a multimodal approach there. Um, but I think pe- patient education and activity modification uh, is, is the key to that. Amen. Well said. Uh, doc, Dr. Google is, yeah, I think visited all, all of our offices uh, <laughs> too often, but you're right. I completely agree with every bit of that. These patients should be advocating for themselves and should be doing research and should come with questions. I love when patients have questions. Even if it's uh, how effective is this cream that I that I bought at two in the morning last night? Um, so so listen, that means that they're invested, that they care. I want them to ask questions, even though we may feel like, oh, here we go again. So I, I, I'm with you on that. And then us communicating, I think that's a you know a huge piece of that is when the patient says, hey, do I need an MRI? Because you know my insurance said I can't get an MRI. Can you talk to the doc about it or? I, and then they go to you and we don't communicate. And then they say, hey, Mike told me I need an MRI. Yep. And you're like, come on, Mike, like you just cut my legs out from under me on that. And <laughs> no, no. So, so it's important that we communicate too. You know, it's- 100% agree. And, and, and going back to, to what we both do, I think in our field, at least our practice specifically in my practice, yep. is you know, you're with the patient two to three times a week, right? right. And, and maybe I'm seeing them once a month at some point. And so, yeah, we, we, we rely with, with, you know, talk to the physical therapist all the time, whether it's by phone or, or just communicate versus uh, via our electronic health system. 
Yeah. Um, and well, those specialties too, but I think, yeah, in, I think healthcare communication um, for patient's sake is, is, is huge and it's key. And I think you got to take in all other opinions and, and kind of sometimes know what you don't know and, and, and trust the opinions of other, other professionals as well. Yeah. Well said. No, I agree. My, I, I think I finished every, every update text with, tell me your thoughts. I, I want to know what you're saying, you know, cause that, that's why we we're doing this. Um, yep. What treatments interventions do you provide yourself in, in your practice? Sure. So we have a focus uh, in terms of interventional procedures. I mean, certainly we do different like cortisone injections, right? Just just basic for rotator cuff, um, shoulder pain, or or, or knee pain. Um, but but specific to to mainline spine, uh, we have a focus on interventional procedures for spine. Um, so that can be an epidural injection, right? For someone with, with sciatica, say they have a disc bulge and, and pain that's shooting down the legs. So something like an epidural injection where we take an anti-inflammatory um, and concentrate it along where the nerve is being irritated um, is a specialty of ours. And we do that under x-ray guidance or fluoroscopic guidance. Uh, the analogy is like throwing water on the fire, right? But once we identify yeah. where this is coming from, let's bring the inflammation down to that specific area, right? Rather than just taking medications that can go throughout their whole body. Um, certainly there's a role for that, but, but to reduce side effects, um, that, that could be an effective treatment. There's something called um, facet joint blocks or, or radio frequency ablations for people with back pain, right? Specifically, um, sometimes older patients that have arthritis of these joints. Can, you can take away the sensitivity of the joint pain through a very low-risk, high-reward procedure that's a 20-minute outpatient procedure. We get as advanced as something called a, a spinal cord stimulator uh, or a neurostimulator. And this is for people who maybe they've already had surgery, right? Or, or they don't want surgery, but they've had all the injections, they've had they've failed the medications and, and their quality of life is poor. So it, the, the analogy there is it's like a pacemaker like people with the pacemaker for your back. And again, this is not first-line treatment. Now we're talking about end-of-the-road treatment, but that's something where you use a device that stimulates the nerves to shut the pain down. Um, so everything in between there, there's, there's a variety of different non-surgical treatments. And that's the key, right? So our goal is to provide non-surgical care. But, but talking about, as we talked about before, having different relationships, like we work with surgeons all the time, right? Sometimes a patient just needs the problem fixed. Um, and so we, we have colleagues that are surgical colleagues of ours that, that, that we refer to and vice versa. A lot, a lot of patients, um, either themselves, because they don't know about our fields, um, will just jump right to a surgeon or sometimes their primary care will refer them to a surgeon's office. Um, and they're not surgical. And so therefore the surgeon will then refer them to us for, for non-surgical care, right? Work it up, maybe try an epidural injection or two, maybe, maybe get you into the right type of physical therapy that they haven't done before, um, yeah. or put you on some sort of pain medication to kind of help you through the rehab process. Um, so, so those are the variety of treatments that, that we use um, in treating pain. So, it, and it's interesting, I'm very happy that you laid it out the way you did, because uh, it seems like that's first order, second order, third order, in terms of, sure. of you know, what uh, is typically, to my understanding, is recommended, you know, from uh, from the, the epidural shot to the facet joint block to uh, the ablation to um, uh, the, the simulator. So, I'm happy you laid it out that way. I, I think what's interesting about all of that is, is how you have more tools and than just a surgeon in some ways, right? Like a surgeon has the toolbox of, I can do surgery. Because you have different tools, you have to navigate that with the patient and see, you know, make a recommendation or make, you know, give them options. Do you find it challenging to, you know, obviously you know what's best practice. Do you find it challenging to discuss that with the patient and give them those options when you know what's best for them or do you just are, how straightforward are you with that because you got to get a feel for the patient too in a short amount of time took the words out of my mouth uh, great question so 
while we have all these tools at our disposal, it's always up to the patient ultimately, right? And so, you know, we're having this conversation. There are some patients that are fearful of going to uh, a pain management office or a sports medicine office for fear of injections. And that's not, here's what I tell patients. I'm not a heart surgeon, right? I'm not gonna say you have to get this done tomorrow. Look, pain and, 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 and musculoskeletal injuries, while it could absolutely impact someone's life and that's the goal of treatments, but it's all elective stuff here, right? And so uh, what our job is to, is to lay out the options that are available, right? Here, here, here's the best way that I think and the quickest way to get you to reduce your pain level or to increase your function like we talked about before. Um, and maybe that includes an injection, maybe it doesn't include an injection, maybe it includes, you know, like I said, a different type of medication. So it's, it's gonna be, it's, it's challenging in that sometimes I have a strong opinion and just doing what I do for, for, for 10 plus years, I kind of know what I think is going to work, but maybe the patient's hesitant. Right. And, and I don't want to necessarily, I never want to force someone into something. Um, uh, but you know, listen, you explain the risk, you explain the benefits, you give your opinion and then ultimately it's up to the patients. Um, and, and so, but I think it's important to give multiple options, right? What I'll never say is, Hey, you have to get the injection or else I don't have anything else to treat you with. Right. That's, that's in my mind, that's not a proper way to, to practice, to practice medicine, but I could say, Hey, I think this injection is going to help you. I think it's going to help you progress in physical therapy, right. And strengthen up your core and get you back to work. And then, and then you give them the options. Um, but, but it's really just, it's, it's not just one treatment, right? It should be what you call like multifactorial treatment, right? It's working with physical therapy. It's maybe getting you some sort of anti-inflammatory medication to help your pain during the day. Maybe it's a muscle relaxer or something a little stronger at night to help you sleep. Then you add the injection into that as well. And the combination of those therapies is, is typically the best practice and best way to, to, to get the patients to, to their goal. That's your cookbook. I mean, that's, I think that's what makes what you do so special is that you're balancing all of this for the, for the outcome of, I want you to obviously feel better and improve your functional mobility and, and performance. Right. So it, it's all these, like you said, uh, different approaches, you know, whether it's treatment or medication or injection or a little bit of everything in different orders to get the best outcomes. I mean, that's, it's a balance act in some ways. And, it, and I'm uh, sure the same experience, right? Some patients will come in and say, Hey, I, I know these exercises to do, right? I just need some hands-on stuff and I, I need I need some ultrasound, I need some stim and, and, and same thing, right? Some patients, you know, maybe they, they don't want medications or all they want is medication. So it, it's a balance and it's, and it's challenging, but like any fields, like I said, it's it's presenting the options and, and uh, in for educating the patient properly, right? I think that's the key here. Well, and I think, and you get trust that way, right? You get trust, you get buy-in buy and, and those patients you've already seen in, in your career, they come back to see you because they trust you. So uh, because you're educating, you're giving them the option. So I think uh, I, I can't harp on that enough in, in the podcast, especially one like this, where, uh, you know, there's some sensitivity to back pain and, and what's best practice to do, whether it's PT or injection or medication or surgery. But uh, the reality is what we can all do is educate and, and offer the, the options that we think are best that are, you know, you know research driven. You know, and that's how you get, that's how you get trust and not forcing anyone's hand. Yep. And, and I will say just to add one more thing here, not to belabor the point, but especially for, yeah. for the patients that are listening here. Yeah. One thing to keep in mind as a patient is that it's really, there is no one size fits all, as you know, right? So, so what I hear a lot is my brother-in-law had the same condition and this injection helped him or this medication helped him. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, as you know, um, it may not be the same condition, even if it's the same exact condition, some people, some patients just respond to one thing versus the other, 
you know, for no rhyme or reason. So there's a little bit of trial and error that, that goes on in, in what we do here. Um, and it's not one size fits all. And, and, and sometimes it's talking through and figuring out specific to you, whether or not your brother-in-law had the same condition or responded to this treatment, it may not work for you. And maybe something different works for you that didn't work for him. Um, so I think that's an important point for, for patients to keep in mind is that yes, there's standard treatments, but it's really individualized. And um, I think that's the key is that is to keep that in mind. Well said. I can't say any better than that. That's perfect. All right. So what is new in medicine or new to you that has you excited about the future of, of, of your field? And the direction yeah. yeah the, the sexy stuff coming up, right? <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. mentioned before how, how um, platelet-rich pl- PRP, platelet-rich plasma, people are hearing there's a stem yeah. cell injections, right? Stem cells, the sexy word here. And yeah. so what those are, and this is, this is a, a growing part of our field. It's been around for a while, uh, but the research is getting better. Um, and it's becoming incorporated more, more mainstream into, into our practice um, with our patients. Uh, and the, the general term is, is regenerative medicine, right? So using your body's natural healing factors to regenerate healthy tissue. So for years, we've done this with athletes, right? Uh, athletes with, with meniscal tears in the knees or rotator cuff tears. Um, I think Kobe Bryant got this procedure done. He had to go to Germany to get it done 15 years ago, right? Because it just wasn't that many physicians doing it. So, so to break that down um, in general sense, so, so when we say PRP, right, platelet-rich plasma, so, so your body has natural healing factors. And in the blood, uh, there's something, there's a product called platelets that have a high concentration of natural healing factors. So what, so what a PRP injection is, is we do a blood draw and we take your body's, your own body's natural blood and you put it into a sh- machine and spins it down and separates out these platelets. So now you have this high concentration of natural healing factors and we're able to, to inject that and locate it into an area of injury to regenerate healthy tissue, right? It's kind of kickstarting your body to, to naturally heal up an injury. Um, and it's the same concept of stem cells. Um, where you you harvest these stem cells usually from bone marrow. It's a little more invasive, not too much more, but a little more because you have to basically harvest these stem cells out of a bone, and it's usually the hip. Um, but same thing, you you extract the stem cells and you you put into a machine and it spins it down, and then you relocate that into an area of injury. And so we've gone from using this primarily with athletes for musculoskeletal injuries to to patients, everyday patients, right? And and we're using it more now for back pain as well, right? Which is exciting. So people with degenerative discs, right? Everybody hears, oh, degenerative disc disease or a bulging disc. And look, obviously there's very specific criteria for this. And you should always talk to, to your healthcare provider or physician about it if you're seeing someone else. Um, but for people with chronic back pain, sometimes if you're a candidate for it, we could use one of these procedures um, and as an alternative to surgery, and that could be a, a fusion, right, or a disc replacement, which is a big surgery and a big and a big sure. recovery time and there's risk factors. So this is a an outpatient procedure that has a very low risk profile and high reward profile to to regenerate healthy tissue and hopefully, you know, just not only mask the pain but but actually improve on the the pathology, right? Improve on the disc bulge, um, or use it for facet joints or SI joints or so different different parts of the spine, different parts of the body. To, to build up healthy tissue. Um, and, and there's been some good studies recently uh, that have shown some good long-term side effects. Um, safety is a big thing and it's been shown to have a, a very, very low risk profile and be very safe for the most part. So that's something that's exciting that, that I think is continuing to grow in our fields. Um, and certainly at, at Mainline Spine, we're trying to stay on top of the cutting edge technology and, and we've, we've advanced uh, this part of our practice. And um, like everything, nothing's 100% and it's not for every patient. Um, but certainly, I think it's worth you know talking to your physician if if, if you failed some other prior therapies and uh, it's something we offer that that's helped a lot of patients. And then we're excited about uh, growing this in the future. 
Heck yeah. That, um, so I've seen, I've been, I'm familiar with PRP. I've seen it uh, being utilized, especially in this, uh, you know, this area just as well as anyone else. In the Philadelphia market, there's a medicine, especially an outpatient is amazing. Uh, there's a, a lot of physicians, uh, sports medicine, all, all kinds of backgrounds really that are yep. in on, on the PRP. I've seen it in Achilles. I've seen it for tennis elbow, golf elbow. I mean, you see it about biceps. Uh, I mean, you, we see it a lot. You see it even um, for the uh, quad tendons. So we're seeing it more so. I've seen it in the past more so for tendons. As of late, I'm seeing it more and more. I'm seeing patients come in after these injections for their low back, for low yeah. back pain and for neck pain. And and it's it's new to me. So this was probably I don't know, about six months, a year ago. I did some research on it. And, uh, and and it's all it's like it's brand spanking new that it's being used more in the spine before the thought process was, at least my understanding was highly like highly vascular, like vascularized area. However, uh, now we're seeing it in the spine to regenerate tissue. Right. And so what you mean by that, my understanding is that's ligaments, right? Ligaments provide stability. Uh, if there's ligaments are lacked or what have you, or if it's a disc issue and there's an instability, the PRP will help regenerate tissue to provide more stability. So your muscles, you're not only dependent on muscles and a lax ligament, right? Now we can stiffen that up, so to speak. Is that, is that like, what do you think of that? Is that- is you, actually, you explained that better than I did, I think. Absolutely, right? It, it helps, it helps. Well, listen, when, when you're when you're regenerating um, healthy tissue, that's gonna help your pain, right? But but more importantly, as you just said, it's providing stability. Uh, and that's why it was this this started with musculoskeletal or, or ligamentous injuries and tendons, right? But we're using it more for soft tissue stuff in the spine as well um, and around certain bones. And yeah, if you have more stability, right? And your body regenerates this healthy tissue around it, um, you're gonna be able to do more, right? You're gonna be able to, it's like, if you wear a brace, right? You wear this external brace and right. that's gonna give you some support. You could strengthen up the core around your muscles and that's gonna give you some support. But if you build up some support with muscles and ligaments and tendons around an area of injury, um, that's gonna stabilize the area and it's gonna allow you to, to be more active and be, and be more functional with less pain. And, that, and that's the goal of it, right? So, so well said by you and uh, agreed, it's, it's, it's exciting stuff. Yeah, heck yeah. There's a, I, I tell patients this all the time. I, the structural deformities or the, the the structural changes your body has undergone, I can't change. That's not in my toolbox, right? But what we can do is something like PRP actually affects the structural uh, integrity of some of these soft tissue structures. I mean, that's to me, you you can um like that. That's invaluable. And like in like me- all of medicine. It's not appropriate or indicated for everybody. It's not a one fix all. There's that's the best part of what I think of what you said from uh, like a research perspective is that it is uh, there's an inclusion criteria for that, you know, that it's indicated for, you know, patients without these risk factors or that fit this criteria. And as there's more research and you guys continue to do this, you're going to be able to, you know, just like a knee replacement, you need to be under this amount of weight to get a knee replacement. Yeah, absolutely. This should not be done on everybody that that walks in the door. And and look, we have to rely on the literature and rely on the science. And and there's been um, multiple studies that have been done that that have proven, hey, this this is most effective for for this certain condition, right? And these certain parameters. And maybe there's a medical condition that that contraindicates the use of it. Yeah. I think it's also important to to when you get this done, at least ourselves, we, we use image guidance for this, right? We want to be very specific to it. We want to be a very specific part of the tendon or muscle or ligament. And so whether that's ultrasound guidance, right, which is a good musculoskeletal tool, 
that we're actually seeing soft tissues and actually seeing the medication go in or fluoroscopic guidance right under the x-ray machine in the spine. Um, I think that's an important part of it for safety and efficacy, right? Let's, let's, let's get this right and not, and not guess where we're going here. Um, and that's a big part of it too. But, well but yeah, hundred percent what you just said, it's not for everybody, but it's certainly, um, it's growing. And I think the, the number of conditions that we're able to help treat with this is growing. And I think that's the exciting part here. Love it. Yeah. Who's, who would you say is, again, roughly, who's appropriate for, who's a candidate for PRP? Sure. So, so if we're going to speak relative to, to low back pain, let's say, right. Um, Cause that's, that's been, that's been a focus, at least in our field and that's growing. It, it's the main people we're using it for is for people with, with a degenerative disc, right. So discs are like jelly donuts, right. And so sometimes when you hear a disc herniation, that means the jelly's squirting out of the donuts. And that can cause pain in one of two ways. Number one, it could press on the nerve and that causes what, what's referred to as sciatica. And that condition is not typically treated very well with PRP, right? If you have nerve pain, pain going down your leg, numbness, tingling, weakness, typically PRP is not going to be the appropriate treatment for that. That's something where an epidural injection helps and, and different extension or, or McKenzie exercises and therapy could help. Look, maybe sometimes that's surgical to help. People who have what we call discogenic back pain, right? So the disc itself, the jelly donut itself, sometimes has a little tear in it, or just becomes loses the, the 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 jelly part, right? Loses the volume, and especially with lower back pain, it's hard to rest that, right? Someone hurts their wrist, you could say, "Hey, let's put into a splint for six weeks and rest it," um, and you can't really do that with your back, right? Sitting, standing, walking, just everyday activities. There's constant pressure in the lower back, especially the lower part levels. Um, the lower two or three discs, just gravity takes its takes its toll and, and puts pressure on those structures. And so when they're compromised, um, and look, there's there's workups involved, right? You you want to have an MRI scan and and you want to have have tried some different more conservative therapies, but it works typically better for people who have what we call again pain from the discs that's not necessarily causing nerve pain but causing back pain. Um, and I think that's where the studies have pointed to, and that's clinically or anecdotally where we're seeing the most relief in those type of patients. Um, which is which is very common. Awesome. How, how much longer until insurances are going to start covering PRP? Yeah. So always, always, always the million dollar question there. Um, so that is the one caveat that we haven't talked about yet. Is is as of right now? Now there are some insurances that will cover it. Um, oh great. I, there I are select. There are select few. But but for the most part, yeah, the private insurances are, are not covering this because they still consider experimental. And so when. I know, so I know. If I had, you know, <laughs> we were doing great, Doc. I know. I know you, 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 you got you got me there. Uh, yeah, I don't have a crystal ball on that. I mean, yeah. like that's that's um, obviously that's that's a challenge in healthcare right now, right? On, on all ends, anybody that's in healthcare, it's a challenge is 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 insurance coverage, and um, you know, it's frustrating for patients, it's frustrating for 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 providers and for healthcare professionals that sometimes we have treatments that, that we think are, are really effective and um, minimally invasive. And yeah, there's unfortunately, there's an out-of-pocket cost to it. Uh, look, every practice and every different type of, of injection and regenerative procedure is going to have a different cost. I know ourselves, you know, we try to really keep it reasonable and just, just kind of cover the cost of, of the procedure itself and the kit, right? So it's, it's a one-time kit if you're using, whether it's stem cells or, or your body's blood, um, obviously that kit's not reusable. But yeah, it, uh, there is an out-of-pocket cost, and when that's going to be covered by insurance is is your guess is as good as mine. It, it blows my mind because I've I've heard different numbers from different practices, and that's I think I think a majority of practices under under charge for for that to, for PRP. To be honest with you, your time, uh, the cost of it, uh, if you have the, the resources, the the centrifuge to centrifuge the you know to uh, to get the precipitate to drop and get the platelets and isolate it out like that. There's a cost with all of that, the time it takes. 
the blood draw. I mean, there's so much to it that I feel like it's more often than not. It's not, I don't think we, and especially in the back, you may be injecting into one or two or three or four sites, you know, depending on what, on what's going on. And, and to me, I think uh, some physicians are, you know, some practices under, undercharge in that. So, uh, you know, kudos to you guys for, you know, you guys charge what you feel like it's, it's worth and, uh, and it works. So the research it supports that more than other interventions that are provided in a lot of other, other, uh, you know, clinical settings. So, yeah, I, I hope you guys, do you guys record like outcomes with some of that? Like, I'd I be curious how, how, uh, you know, clinical, I'm just like spitballing here, but how practices record that data. Yeah. So we actually, um, did do some, um, not, not, not a full on clinical trial that, that sure. that's been done, but we, yeah, we did some, um, what do you call it? just, just kind of a anecdotal study, right? We're recording our own data and, and measuring pain scores before the injection and after the injection. And, and we did that when we first started that, because we wanted to get a sense for ourselves too, right? Listen, we trust the literature, we trust the research, but in the real world, right? Clinically speaking, how are patients doing? And, and we did do a study probably five, six years ago, not having the, the exact numbers in front of me, but but I would say about 70% of patients got 70% relief, if that makes sense, right? So the majority of patients got over 50% relief. And that's Same that's right. significant. That's significant in our field, at least that's significant. Absolutely. So look, again, this is this is not the end all be all. And it's just it's another tool in our treatment box, but but it's just it is just a kind of circle back to the original question. It's something that, that in the pain medicine field, I think is is up and coming and and expanding um, and exciting. But but certainly there's other and, and it works with the treatment options as well, obviously. I love it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, all right. So this is a, a sports performance podcast, right? You know, I, I want to ask you a question about athletes. And I know you, you guys see it all there, right? Like you said, 16, 104. So with respect to athletes with low back pain, what is the typical presentation that you'll see in the clinic? Um, and maybe it's sport dependent, maybe not. And, and how do you manage it? So for a second, I thought you were going to go into a Carson Wentz uh, injury history here. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure if there's enough time, time on the podcast yeah, to cover that. So. With, with a, a double ankle sprain. I, I, I'll say this. I, I've, I've been practicing this field for, for many years. And I've worked with sports teams and, and professional and college sports teams and uh, or ask, you know, athletes. And uh, that's a first in the same game, different injuries. So fascinating, fascinating, fascinating is a good term for that. <laughs> to go back to your question. So. So the typical presentation, if we're talking about back pain, I, I tend to break down back pain one or two ways. Um, I think we touched on this before. People with back pain, and this, this, this applies to the neck too, right? So, yep. so people with what we call axial pain, right? So neck pain, back pain, or people with nerve-related pain or neurogenic symptoms, right? So that's pain that shoots into the arms or shoots into the legs. So typically the neck is called the cervical spine. Um, and when there's nerve involvement, that'll radiate into the arms and sometimes into the hands. Um, and so the low back is called the lumbar spine. And typically if there's nerve involvement, that'll radiate into the hip and the knee and the, and the ankle and the foot, right? And that can be um, nerve pains often characterized as, as numbness or tingling or shooting pain or electric pain, where sometimes patients feel like they have ants crawling on their skin when there's knots. And yep. so that's nerve pain. So, so I think it's very important to, to categorize, um, let's focus on back pain here, on patients with just with back pain or patients that have nerve involvement and, and there are different treatments. And so that's the presentation. Again, we'll see whether, let's, let's say someone comes in with sciatica pain, right? So it's very popular, right? People sciatica, I have sciatica. And so there's two main causes or two main presentations of sciatica, right? One would be acute, right? Where someone is saying, I was, I was, 
playing golf with my buddies the other day and on hole seven, I went down to pick up the ball. And I got this sharp shooting pain down my leg. I've never had it before. Okay. Well, if that persists and by the time they kind of see me as a specialist, you know, that's probably been going on for a week or two or three, and maybe they've seen the primary care doctor or sometimes even gone to the urgent care. And so what you kind of suspect there is, is a disc herniation, right? That we talked about before the jelly kind of squirting out of the donuts, younger patient, um, new onset, um, and with, 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 with leg pain going down the leg, um, that's the first thing you think of. And that's where you start to, Hey, maybe we have to order an MRI scan or get you into some therapy or do an injection. The flip end of that is someone with, with just back pain, right? And you can kind of characterize this back pain as, as acute or chronic too. So acute back pain um, could be due just to strain the muscle, right? I was mowing the lawn and I pulled too hard and I got tightness and spasm, right? Those are signs of, of muscular injuries. And that's a, that's, a, that's a common presentation we see versus someone that comes in my office and says, I've had back pain for 15 years now. And maybe that's an older patient that there, there's multiple levels of arthritis. Um, so long-winded way to answer your question is, is a typical presentation um, that I see is either back pain, right? Just, just, just pain in the back that doesn't radiate into the legs, numbness, tingling. And yep. you try to tease that out and it presents as either, either acute or chronic. Uh, this is generally speaking, of course, um, yep. or patients that present with, with, with leg pain. Um, and that's typically requires a little more workup or a little more urgency to the workup because um, there's, there's, you don't want to wait on, on nerve pain to get worse and lead to weakness or, or sometimes that can become permanent. So that there's a little more urgency in that typically. So I feel like we see spondies in the athletic population a lot. Um, yep. So uh, do you mind touching on that and, and how you diagnose it? And how do you manage? Because like Carson Wentz, you brought it up. Um, that you know that was the injury he had, and then he was able. He was cleared to play at one point or another, to my understanding. Uh, except you know, Nick Foles was uh, was holding it down, and and they kept Wentz on the back burner. But like, so you can play through Bondi at times. Uh, when's that appropriate? Because I, I feel like I'm thinking of low back uh, in athletic population. Yes, we we see. Uh, you know, herniations uh, that's common, especially like in golfers, you see it a lot. Baseball players, you see it a good bit. Yep. Professional athletes, right? Um, you know, field hockey, I see it a good bit. And then you have generalized low back pain, right? Like I see that in other sports, like lacrosse, you see that a good bit. Football, you see that a lot where, where there's more trauma. So thinking of spondy now, um, you know, is there, and that's also very common, especially in the growing, you know, developing athlete. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, when you see a young athlete come in, there's, there's, so when you say spondy, right? So, so we're talking about a term called spondylolysis, a big fancy term that means it's a little tiny fracture in the bone. And that could be not necessarily a fracture, but sometimes the bone just doesn't fully heal. Um, or sometimes there's an actual traumatic injury that causes a fracture. And, and that can be something that, that should always be in the forefront of our minds, especially with young athletes, um, gymnasts, right? Big, big population, they see that's for. And again, you want to make sure that there's no nerve involvement for it. The, the danger of having the spondy or spondylolysis is that sometimes if the fracture gets worse or doesn't get, doesn't, doesn't get treated, that, that the bone can actually become then unstable and slip over the other bone, right? And that becomes something called a spondylolisthesis. Again, big fancy yeah. term, doesn't matter. The point is that, you know, from, from a patient standpoint, that if you have a fracture or, or a non-union of a bone, 
You don't want that to progress so that the bone becomes unstable and then starts to move and cause to, starts to push on the nerve. And so um, that's that's anytime we see a young athlete with back pain, you know, you want to get some x-rays. Um, and sometimes that doesn't show it, right? Sometimes you have to get x-rays with them bending kind of forward and backwards to, he, to see it. Sometimes um, an advanced imaging called a CAT scan. Or, or even a, a, a bone scan where you inject some dye, the radiologist checks some dye into it. And that will kind of really show a specific area of the back, right? This is common in the back where you have that fracture. And look, it's not doom and gloom if you have it. And it's actually very common in young athletes, as you said, right? Because their bones aren't fully healed yep. and, and they're involved in, in, in sports and in high level sports or high impact sports. And because there's no full maturity of these bones, that they're subject to this. Um, and it can be dealt with, you know, conservatively, right? It's not, most of the time these days, it's not surgical. Um, yep. Sometimes we, we have to shut the activities down, as you know. Um, sometimes we have to put them in a brace to really even shut just normal activities of daily living down. Um, and certainly then there's a, a big therapy component to this, right? Let's, once we identify this is the condition, let's reduce the pain, let's reduce the inflammation. But then more importantly, then it becomes a return to play issue, right? And, and how long do you wait out um, and really strengthening up the spine? And it's not just the spine, as you know, that everything comes into play with that, right? Tight hamstrings, um, pelvic curvature. You really want to treat the whole body as they say, hip bones connected to the knee bone, right? And so treating all of that is important, especially in young athletes, right? Not only for return to sports, which is going to be important to some people and should be, but also to, to be able to, to lead healthy, active lives without having chronic pain. So those are patients um, that, that we do see, um, and especially I know you see, and you really want to get a little more aggressive in, in the conservative treatment to shut that pain down and address the issue. And then future prevention becomes of the utmost important there. Yeah, well said. Yeah, nailed it. I mean, that's, I think what a lot of people, a lot of people hear uh, spondylolysis, like you said, and they, you know, here it's a fracture. And yes, it's a non-union of the bone. I think it's common that um, there are timelines for when we expect that to uh, be in a better position where you yep. can participate in higher yep. level activities. Uh, bracing it, I'm with you on that. I see it's more common and especially if it's recurrent, you see that a lot because it is that can be recurrent. Um, yeah. And by the way, not to cut you off here, but but as you know, look, if I have a if I have a sixteen year old athletes, they're not going to want to wear a brace, right? I mean, they should, but yeah. but that that's going to be a struggle. And and so so just to cut you off here, right? That that's yeah. ideal is to shut that down. But that that's really where I think we need to step in. And I say me and you and 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 our field into, okay, so if you're not going to wear the brace during school, right, maybe wear it for a couple hours afterwards, but really modify your activity level and, and, and we need these things to heal so it doesn't get worse, so it doesn't become a chronic issue. Well said. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but, but just the you know, oh. brace thing's always, just, it's always, it's always a struggle, right? It's always well, a struggle. I, and, and we, listen, we, we work, uh, the, the, your office is called Mainline Spine, right? I work in Ardmore. So, right. so we under, yeah, I think uh, people can read, your listeners can read between the lines that we have parents that come in with these kids uh, and that, you know, and they're, they advocate and they ask the right questions. It's it's great. I, actually, I love it. I think we need to, we need to speak the same language, right. With that. So, you know, if, if Dr. Davidoff is giving me a heads up, listen, he's only supposed to be out of the brace when he's in PT. Otherwise I want him in the brace, you know, other, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We need to be, I need to understand what, uh, the precautions and guidelines that you laid out can echo them the same way in, in the end, like most injuries we want, you know, from a PT perspective, we want the structurally things are you know regulated. We want inflammation to, to be minimal so we can return uh, the atrophy that's occurred. 
and turn, turn to get some stability there, right? Through the low back and then return to normal mobility and normal, normal lifestyle, right? So we got to get stronger through the, you know, improve the flexibility of the hip flexors, which attach to the lumbar spine, right? Uh, the psoas muscles. And same with the flexibility of the hamstrings and core stability and progress from different positions from supine to prone to kneeling to tall kneeling to standing, et cetera. So uh, it's all about load through the spine, through all those different positions as well. Yeah. Yeah. You said it. And, and, that, and that brings up a good point, too, is also like if we're, if we're just kind of talking about a return to play. Right. Yeah. There should be a, a structured program. Right. Yeah. It's not just rest two weeks and then get back on the football fields. Right. But it's, it's, it's making sure that your pain levels down so you don't overcompensate and hurt yourself more. Um, But then, then what's tight needs to be stretched out and what's weak needs to be strengthened. Um, And then you gradually return to play, right? You, you start with low impact exercise and then you progress to maybe simulated um, sports specific activities, right. And then practice and then make sure it doesn't flare up. And then you talk about a return to play. And look, that could be, that, that could be expedited. That could be a couple of weeks. That could be a couple of months. It depends on the thing, but, but I think it's important for, for especially any, any parents or, or young athletes listening that you really want to take the advice of, of your therapist, of your doctor, of your healthcare professional there and, and making sure, Hey, let's, let's, we all want to see it, get you back on the field as soon as possible, but, but let's, let's be safe about this and, and, and think about the future as well. Well said. You nailed it, man. I mean, well, seriously, thank you for, for saying that because, uh, you know, that's something that we preach a lot. There is a process with this. It's not when, you know, you get it all the time. Patient asks you, when, when can I get back to playing golf again? Or when can I get back to, you know, the, the competition of playing football or what have you? It, it's so difficult to say uh, because there's a process and there's so many hiccups that could happen along the way. That uh, what's best for you is that we take this one week at a time, and and you know, and we, we progress and we hit all we hit all these these milestones before we move on to the next thing, and and that's yep. the best way to do it. Totally agree. Totally agree. Amen. All right. What what else you got? I, I, that's everything I had. I want to know if there's anything you want to discuss or or dive into or anything that you got on your mind that you feel like you want to get off off your chest. Yeah, no, listen, I, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Uh, everything from uh, from PRP to Carson Wentz's ankles. So I think uh, I think we we covered a lot of ground. I, I, I'll end on one thing. I know, you know, yeah. we're talking about the field of, of pain medicine and, and kind of what's changed and the and the and the, the challenges, so to speak. Um, and just to to kind of touch on, um, you know, the opiate crisis is out there, Please, right? And so you. this has been. Yeah. Um, at, least, at least five years ago, three, four, five years ago, we started gathering some more information and, and it was it was an epidemic. There was a lot of doctors that didn't have the proper education, not, not, and not even faulting them, but just, just we didn't have as a field in general, the proper research and, and, and knowledge and, and education um, to know the rest of those. And so that is one struggle that, that we'll have is that like patients, there's still a role for opiate therapy. Right. I think I think you can make a case that the pendulum and look, there had to be regulations and there and there had to be restrictions put into place that that limit the use and limit the quantity, and limit the strength. And those were those were blessings. And it's going to save lives. And there's no doubt about it. I think that at times you can say the pendulum swung too far that that we do have we run into barriers that there are some people that do need pain medications. Right. They have chronic pain and some of these medications do help them function. And in the right patient, that's compliance that has shown to to benefit from that um, sometimes it's a, it's a struggle to get the medication so I, I think you know that's a challenge we face um, and on the flip side look we still have patients that come in and say just I need a pill to help me function right and, and it's not as simple as that because there are risks and side effects and and, and risks of addiction um, to these medications and they are dangerous and need to be used properly so 
uh, I would just caution patients, um, and certainly if anybody that, that has has issues and are struggling, there are certain help centers now. But something that's come up in our field is, you know, we we have access to something called a PDMP, where like we're required before prescribing a restricted or controlled substance that we check this website to see did this patient get it from another doctor, right? Or have they have they are they double dipping? Uh, on the flip side. You know, we, we have to check urine screens now too, right? Which is a great thing uh, and make sure that the patients either A, doesn't have any other illicit substances in them uh, or B, is actually taking the, the medication that we're giving them. So that's been a big change in our field over the last five to 10 years, a change that was absolutely needed, but it, it, it does present, uh, it presents challenges on both sides, right? By managing those patients that do need it and, and providing them with, with appropriate care. Um, but also being conservative and being attentive to the risk of it and, and not and not overprescribing and not going down the path of, of getting someone in trouble with that. And so, you know, more research is coming out and there's different types of medications that are that are not addictive that are coming out. And that's something to, to look forward to as well. Um, and again, this goes into both acute and chronic pain, right? It's sometimes pharmacology has to come into play just to help patients function. And what's safe and what's not safe is, is, is something that's definitely changed over the past several years. Love it. This is um, this is something that hits close to home. I've been to too many funerals, and um, yep. you know, and it wasn't necessarily uh, directly from opioids, uh, but but the the, the the track that that can lead uh, down to, and uh, just way, way too many. At least like ten under the age of like 30, 35. It's just wild. Um, and and it's and you're right. I think it's it's saving lives and it's it's uh it's great to see that it's making a change and it has the pendulum swung too much. I'm sure at times it, it, it's extremely challenging. Um how, how do you manage how do if you don't mind me asking, how do you manage younger patients that 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 ask for it, right? Especially if they're in high school college. I, I feel like that's we see it in here after like surgeries, after procedures. Uh, and they ask, can I continue to take it or should I ask for more? Legally, I can't tell you what you should and shouldn't do with your medication. I'll tell you personally, I hope you get off of it as soon as possible. But you, from from you know a psychological perspective, I want you to get off of it as soon as possible. And from a health perspective, however, you need what you need, right? Like if you can't do what, you, what you're supposed to do, then that's, you know. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you brought up a good point. And I think a lot of this, the studies have shown and the, and the data has shown that, that unfortunately in younger patients, right, that don't have a history of substance abuse or, or don't present with the certain risk factors for addiction. Um, and the ones that unfortunately get caught down that path is that sometimes it starts with the surgery. And this is, this is no blame to anybody, right? But, but obviously post-operative, you need some pain medications. And, um, and that's, that's a slippery slope of, of how long you need those pain medications, right? And so, so the surgeons have, have definitely become more educated and they, most of them have a protocol now, whether it's a week or two weeks and they have a cutoff like, hey, you know, you know, there's other ways of, and, and sometimes look, that's, we'll, we'll get the referrals for that, right? For, for, for pain management post-operatively, very challenging. Yeah, to say the Very least. challenging. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I personally will say, especially on younger patients that have acute pain, right? And, and are post-operative that I, I really press hard to not continue um, opiate therapy. I, it just, it just, it's a slippery slope. And especially in younger patients, any patient for that matter, but especially in a young patient that, that had a recent surgery, had an injury, they're going to heal, right? They're going to heal for the most part. And they just need some more time. And look, it's, it's our job, our job, both of our jobs to yeah. help them through that, right? And reduce the pain as much as possible and help them function as much as possible, but educate them that it's just not going to go away right away, right? And maybe it needs another few weeks. Um, and hey, let's try this different type of anti-inflammatory or hey, let's try this injection. 
something called a TENS unit, right? Let's try a TENS unit where, where it kind yep. of stimulates the muscles. And, and maybe when you're sitting in class or laying down watching TV, you know, you put that on and and and, and it stimulates the muscles and gets you some pain. So yeah, it, it, those are it, those are challenging cases. Um, but I think the history has taught us that, especially in that patient population, that, that the sooner that they get off the opiates and not get reliant upon them, um, the better. And that's that's been my model there. Amen. Well said, man. Uh, Of everything that we spoke about today, which we had, like you said, jam-packed. Circle the globe here. Yeah, you're not kidding. The opiate, you know, crisis, as some would call it, uh, you know, is one, like I said, one that hits home for a lot of people. And if there's, you know, something that I think young athletes and parents can take away from, you know, this amongst the many things that we spoke about is, is be your own advocate and ask that if you're getting prescribed opiates, that's okay. That's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to ask, is there an alternative? Is there something else? That, is there another option? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and again, we could probably do a whole other podcast on this, <laughs> True. Um, but, True. but, but you're, you're correct. Ask for all our terms because there are some stuff out there. Look, there's, there's all these homeopathic medications have come sure. out, which, which can provide some relief, right? There's, there's CBD oil, there's turmeric yeah. supplements, right? And, and these are non-addictive and over-the-counter, over-the-counter sure. medications. And we need a sure. prescription for that can help just, just help in the process of healing and, and, and a lot safer alternatives than they're out there. So yeah, just, just to reiterate what you said, anybody listening out there, um, ask for alternatives, educate yourself, what else is out there. Um, and, and that has been coming along with the opiate epidemic and the restrictions. There has been a wave of other, you know, non, non-opiate, non-prescription, um, medications and modalities that, that, that have can definitely be effective. Sure. Yeah, this this just further reinforces the entire theme of this podcast, in my opinion, is how progressive the field of pain management and rehabilitation has grown. Uh, you know, like we talked about the different injections and the ablation and the PRP and the the stimulator and 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 even you know the the procedures that are in place now with with opioids and and uh, and how your practice has changed over time with different imaging, uh, you know, to be to used to to guide injections and so forth. Yeah, it's cool. And that's the way medicine should be, right? Like we should be getting better. So that kudos, man. Is, is there uh, anything else you want, you want to add? I, listen, I, I, I appreciate you having me on here. Would love to come back anytime and chat more. Um, I appreciate it. And I appreciate what you guys do too, right? Um, you know, PTW, Physical Therapy Wellness Center. We've co-treated patients with you guys for yeah. years now. And, and I know uh, you're growing the art of our office and, and look forward to, to treating patients with you in the future too. So I appreciate you having me on. Of course, my pleasure. Can you please let our, our listeners know uh, how to best get in touch with you uh, or uh, a way they can reach out to you? Is there a phone number of your practice or a, a, ta- a handle or an email or, you know, your Instagram, whatever, whatever you should. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll save the Instagram feed for right now. But uh, yeah, Mainline Spine. Um, so our website's uh, MainlineSpine.com. Um, our, our general scheduling number is uh, 610-337-3111. But yeah, we've we've a, a pretty good website up there, and 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 has all the information on the conditions we treat, and and the bio of the of the healthcare providers, and uh, I think you can actually schedule um, appointments or or request to speak to someone online too. So either way is great, and um, it's a great field we're both in. Again, we discuss the challenges, but but there's there's uh, there's there's benefits there, and it's def- there's there's satisfaction in, in terms of of helping people, and 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 just just pain and quality of life, and it could it could affect someone's life, and and so it's challenging, but there's tools out there. And, and so uh, my message would be to uh, to reach out and, and, and explore your options. Well said. Well said. No, amen. This is an awesome podcast. I'm thrilled that we got a chance to do this. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Mike, appreciate it, man. Take care. All right. You got it. Take care. All right. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It would mean so much to me if you could leave us a five-star review so more listeners like you could get this important information. See you next time.